most of us have heard the teaching story that was told a long time ago for the first time. Because it's a teaching story, it probably tells us it's not true, but the point is still worth repeating. Three blind men were asked, what is an elephant? And the blind men replied, well, we don't really know what an elephant is, never seen one in the truest sense of the word. And so they arranged for them to see an elephant as a blind man would. And so they led the first one up to the elephant and he put his hands out and he felt the side of the elephant. And he moved his hands around like that and so finally he said an elephant is like a wall. They led the next, ele- uh, the next blind man up to the elephant right up to his face. And he put his hands out and he grabbed the trunk of the elephant and he felt of it up and down and he said an elephant is like a tree trunk. The third one came in and he came to the other side of the elephant, which is the back side. He reached out and he grabbed the tail. And he said, an elephant is like a rope. Now my question to you is, which one of those guys was right? Okay, this is how that works. I'll ask a question and you respond. (laughs) Which one of the blind men was right? All of them were right. Perspective is a powerful tool in life. And that's especially true in the Christian life. What I want to do today is something that's very different for me. Normally what I do when I come to a passage of Scripture is take a small piece of it and just dive in and dig. Today what I I want to do today is to uh, back off from a passage of Scripture... Instead of taking the micro view, I want to take the macro view. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the entire book of Mark. Now you know that uh, it takes me roughly 30 minutes to an hour and a half to get through a verse or two. So how long do you think it will take me to get through 16 chapters? You're going to have to listen quickly this morning. That's all I can say, all right? But here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask ourselves this question about Jesus Christ. Who is this guy? Mark's gospel lays out for us a number of different truths. And as we come to this truth, it is essentially about Jesus Christ and who he is. But one of the things that uh, scholarship has shown us through the years is that Mark and all the other gospel writers are very targeted and very um, intentional in the way they write their gospels. And it is argued, and I happen to agree with the way it's all put together, that Mark comes to this particular presentation of the life of Jesus Christ, and in showing us who Jesus is, he also shows us a developing discipleship, a developing faith among the disciples as they gradually come to understand who Jesus is. You see, normally what we want to do is take these disciples at that moment that Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Scripture says they leave their nets and they go follow him. And in our minds, we want to set them up like they're automatically, immediately super saints. And then we get all kind of weirded out when we find them failing in their faith at various places. So what Mark does for us is shows us this developing level of faith. 
Now, what that should do for you and for me is to help us understand that there are those people who have a Paul kind of Damascus Road experience where all of a sudden you get this perception of who Jesus is and it changes everything immediately. But Mark's gospel shows us another side of discipleship, and that is that it is a growing, emerging kind of faith. I would actually say to us that what Mark teaches us here shows us that all of us, regardless of how you come to Christ, whether it's in a moment, all of a sudden everything changes in your life, or you grow up in a Christian home and you just kind of gradually begin to personalize the truths you've always been taught, whatever the case, all of us are on a long journey with Christ. And as we walk with Him and as we grow, this thing we call the Christian life gradually but surely moves us into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what He brings to us in life. So Mark's Gospel, six different pictures of who Jesus is. Let's look at the first one. Mark's Gospel lays out in several different ways. One of the first, or the first section that we find, chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through chapter 4, verse 24, reveals Jesus to us as teacher. Now, Jesus is, in fact, not just a teacher. Mark shows us that he is the great teacher. Look at chapter 1 with me, and we'll start reading in verse 21. And it says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And, there were, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, let me stop right there for a second. And in this first chapter, in the first real section that Mark lays out, he puts on the lips of this man the ultimate conclusion of his gospel. Mark lets us see inside to the very end of the story, and he says through this man, this is in fact the Holy One of God. But before we get there, okay, now that's, that's foreshadowing where we're going to go before it's all said and done. But before we get there, Mark shows us Jesus as teacher. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, gives us the parable of the soils. And we get to the end of that, and here's what it says. And with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. What we find is that Jesus, in this ongoing uh, life that he had, he pulls these disciples to himself. He begins to reveal himself to them, and he is a teacher like none other. We find Jesus presented as one. They said, he teaches us, but he does so with authority. It's not like what we heard from the scribes and those other teachers that we've always known. He, there's something about his teaching. I would say it's alive. It's not just stuff like a lesson. Now here's the problem with this. It's not bad, and we have to acknowledge that Jesus is each one of these things as we move through Mark's presentation. But Jesus is more than just a teacher. You see, it doesn't take any real faith to acknowledge Jesus as a teacher. Many of you are teachers. 
In just a little while, some of you have already started teaching your kids. If you're homeschooling, I know a number of our families started August the 1st. I'm glad I wasn't one of your children having to start school the 1st of August. Many of you are teachers in a public school or private setting, and in just a few weeks you're going to go into the school, and you're going to start having these children, and they're going to come to you, and they're just ready to learn. So happy to be back in class. And you're their teacher. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to acknowledge Jesus as a teacher. I have, you see, here's the problem with us. One of the things that we do is, I'm, I'm talking about Christian people, okay? The church people now. Our tendency is to get a surrogate Jesus. Now, what I mean by that is we come in and we acknowledge that he is Jesus, the Christ, the teacher, especially in this particular case, and then we immediately start following teachers that we like. And maybe it's a radio preacher. Or maybe it's some preacher, a pastor that you've had in years past and you just love the way he preaches. And so if you get a chance, you, you listen to it. We put our sermons here online. That's not because I have this great need to be heard, okay? It's not because I necessarily said, yes, people need to have the chance to hear me preach. It is so that you can have the opportunity, if you miss here, or people outside of our church, it's an opportunity for us to put the word out to people who need life. But the problem with that is there are those people, whether it's me or some other pastor, and and they're going to look at that teacher and they're going to say, I am his disciple. One of the ways I can tell where you are in your spiritual life is how you talk about your teachers. Do you listen to Christ as much as you listen to David Jeremiah or whomever else? Understand, I'm not picking on those things. I'm just talking about our tendency to take Jesus, set him off to the side, and lift somebody else up into his place. It doesn't take much faith to accept Jesus as a teacher. A lot of people in this day and age of the first century did exactly that. So let's look to the second one. Mark doesn't just show Jesus as a teacher. That's the entry level that we find here. The second level we find is Jesus as he's presented as a prophet. This occurs in Mark chapter 4 verse 35 all the way through chapter 6 verse 30. And here's the deal. Now Mark shows us that Jesus is more than just a teacher because he does things that no mere teacher can do. Mark chapter 4 verse 35 through 41, it says this, And on that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Let me put that in modern English for you. What's your problem, man? Don't you know we're drowning here? that communicate? All right. Verse 39. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. In Greek, that translates literally, be muzzled. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? 
Okay, full stop, time out. Hello? Why are you so afraid? Did you not see the waves? Have you still no faith? Let me make sure you're with me now. This is a group of disciples who left everything to follow him. They already knew that he was a great teacher. And yet in the face of danger, they knew enough to go wake him up. You've got to give them credit. Have you still no faith? Let me tell you something. What that tells me about Jesus, he is not going to let you be satisfied settling in to an inadequate faith. He's just not going to do it. That's bad news for American Christianity, but it is truth. And they were filled with great fear. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he just spoke to nature and it did what he said. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Are you starting to plug in just a little bit? More than just a teacher. Oh, he certainly is a great teacher. But there's something about Jesus that takes us beyond the comfort of our ability to turn a teacher off. This is one now you can't just turn off and ignore because he does things no teacher can do. He speaks to the wind and the sea. They obey him. Who then is this? He is a prophet. We find various places. Chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6, verses. Well, let's just read that one. And Jesus said to them, a prophet. Okay, now, so here's where we're at. Jesus now puts on his own lips this title. Because they're beginning now to see him as more than just a teacher. That throws him into the Old Testament category of a prophet. One who can do great things because of God's hand on his life. Make sure you heard that the way I said it. One who can do great things because of God's hand on his life. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and King Herod heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. I guess so. You start calming stormy seas, that happens. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And so Mark now presents on the lips of these common people and on the lips of Jesus himself that he's more than a teacher. He's a prophet like those of old. Now I have to tell you, this is one of the selfish levels of faith. It's one of those levels where we kind of wade into the mix. Well, let me just say it this way. We like our own personal Jesus who has power. Let me challenge you to think for just a moment about your own prayer life. How much of your prayer life gravitates to Jesus with power? You know, God... I'm struggling down here. I got this corn on my big toe and it's just killing me. So how do we pray for that corn on our big toe? Get rid of it. We all need a Jesus with power, don't we? Everybody go like this. It's okay. That's a good, we, we do. Because this life is out of our control. 
Oh, we can control little pieces of it, but we don't get to control all of it. And when we get out of control and we get threatened, we immediately run to Jesus the prophet and say, we need you to do something for us. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, except that it's not quite the level that we need to get to. Matter of fact, it's only the second of six. So let's go to the third one. Now in chapter 6, verse 31, through chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus presents as Messiah. This is the one that is essentially that Old Old Testament children of Israel picture of the one who will come. He is the one with power because God's stamp is on him. His hand is on him. He is deliverer of God's people. We have to understand the Jewish expectations here. We go back all the way to the Old Testament, and I'm giving you a lot of Old Testament history and big, wide sweeps here. But God called the children of Israel to Egypt, and then from Egypt in slavery through the hand of Moses into the wilderness, and from the wilderness into the promised land through the hand of Joshua. And then after Joshua came those period, that period of the judges, and then after that came the period of Samuel, and then King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon, and then tragedy struck. Because the children of Israel, just like us, had this tendency towards ignoring God. And so we find this branch that it goes out. It's like the difference when 69 goes one way and 96 goes the other way, and never the two shall meet again. Unless by chance. And in this case, by chance means that God said, you are still my people and I demand that you live accordingly. But they weren't. And so God steps in and he begins to discipline his people and he sends them off into captivity. First the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. And in the process of doing that, this underlying theme of deliverance rose up through the mouths of the prophets from God's heart himself to the children of Israel and saying, I know that you're hurting. I know that you feel like I've abandoned you, but there is hope. And one day I'll bring you back to myself and back to the promised land. And the one that they looked to to accomplish that was the one they called Messiah. And so now we find ourselves in Mark's gospel. Jesus has been presented as teacher. And Jesus has been presented as prophet. And now a step, a huge step forward. Because he's also identified as Messiah. Chapter 8 verses 22 and following says this. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Time out, full stop. Let's evaluate for a second. What is that all about? Do you think that Jesus had a miracle cramp or something and it didn't quite work? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he goes to heal the guy and he heals the guy and the guy's not blind anymore, but yet he's not like totally there. I look out here and a lot of you wear glasses. Some of us, me included, wear contacts. If that's you, no glasses or no contacts but you need them, you're used to seeing people walking around looking like trees, right? 
I, I can't even hardly see the tree out there, but I can see if it's moving. And so is, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus kind of bring him to the point that he's ready for some eye-ear optical kind of intrusion after Jesus finished? What, what is the deal that Jesus didn't finish this thing with him first? And I'd submit to you that it is a living example of what was happening in the lives of his disciples as they were beginning to see, but they weren't quite there yet. And so we find it goes on. Verse 25, Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. A developing ability to see. From teacher to prophet to Messiah. You know, many church people these days have adopted this picture of Jesus and that's as far as they go. Like the blind man and the elephant is a wall... All they get is this picture. He's the one who helps us overcome. As a matter of fact, there's a better than average chance that many of us in here came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ because somebody said to us, if you don't accept him, you're going to go to hell. You know what? If that's what it takes to get you to Jesus Christ, good. Because if you don't accept him, you're going to go to hell. That's not the preacher telling you that. That's reality. That's what God's Word says. And you need a Savior. You don't need a feel-good Jesus. You need a Savior. But the problem in so many churches and so many church people is we stop there. And we get us this messianic Jesus. By the way, the word Christ is not a proper name. It's not Jesus' last name. It is the term that means Messiah. He is the promised one, the deliverer. And he comes to the scene and he comes to say, I am the one who will take you back to God's heart. But you can't put a period there like so many church people do. Because there's more to who he is. He's more than just one who helps us overcome our circumstances. That's the Jesus that you put on a shelf and you go get him when your circumstances get out of your control. So let's take the next step. Now we go to the Son of Man. Chapter 8, verse 31 through chapter 10, verse 45. Interesting term here, Son of Man. It was in first century Jewish life a way of referring to yourself. This is Son with a small s, not a capital S, okay? In just normal Jewish life of the first century, if they wanted to refer to themselves, they wouldn't say, I such and such necessarily. They would also say, well, the son of man, such and such. And it's just a way of talking, okay? It was just part of how they did their normal thing. So it was a nice, um, safe way to refer to yourself. But Jesus takes it as he always does. He takes the normal and he pumps meaning into it. And so now Jesus refers back to a passage out of the book of Daniel. 
The Son of Man is pulled in. And it carries with it the way Jesus uses it, with a capital S, as you say, as you see here. And he pulls it in, and all of a sudden now, it has that same connotation as Messiah. He's talking about himself. A veiled way, a safe way for those opponents who are around him, and yet very targeted by Jesus in his teaching with his disciples. And so now we find chapter 8. In verse uh, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after the three days rise again. You see what Jesus does now is he takes their perspective. By the way, we have another passage, chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. We're going to read that and I'll come back to that statement. And as they were coming down the mountain, this after transfiguration, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I will stop reading there. Even though it goes through, chapter, uh, through verse 12, just kind of a repeat. Here's what we find. Jesus takes their statement, their perception of the Messiah, and he totally flips it on its head. Because now he says, I'm going to die. They don't want a diable Messiah. They want a Messiah who's going to come in and cut off the collective head of the Roman army. They want a Messiah who's going to come in and elevate them to their rightful place. And here he is talking about death. Now they missed the rise again part of it for a long time because they're stuck on the death part. So let's take another step. I'm running out of time. Son of David is the next one. Chapter 10, verse 46 through chapter 13, verse 37 Now, this is a term that throws Jesus not just into this messianic role, it also throws him into the role of king. Following the line of David, as promised to David back in the Old Testament. Here we go to chapter 10, verse 46 and 47. And as they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have you noticed yet how often the titles of Jesus that Mark's talking about are being given by normal people? It's not the religious crowd who figured it out. It's just people. You know why that is? Because just people, that's me and you, by the way, we know what we need because of this thing called life. My dad used to say quality is hard to find, but it is not hard to recognize. Real people with real problems recognize the real Jesus. Son of David, the one qualified as we find in the next passage of this very book of Mark, the one qualified to ride in this triumphal entry to be hailed as king. Mark lays his gospel out for us step by step, moving us gradually to understand who Jesus is. He's teacher. He's prophet. 
He's more than that. He's Messiah, but he's more than that. He's the Son of Man, the promised one who will suffer and die. And he's more than that. He's the Son of David. He fits into the line of the descendants of David as promised by God. And ultimately now we come to the final one. And this is in chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 39. As we saw early in chapter 1, now we see it come to full fruition. He is, in fact, the Son of God. God in the flesh. Chapter 15, verse 39, at the foot of the cross, it says this, and when the centurion, you know who that was? A Roman, not a Jew. Not a scribe, not a Pharisee, not even a disciple. A Roman soldier who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. More than a teacher. Oh, he's a great teacher. He'll tell you the things you need to know about life. He's more than that. He's a prophet. He brings incredible power to life. But he's more than a power outlet. He's in fact Messiah. He's not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. He's the son of man who will come as also the son of David. And turn things on their head for the Jewish people and everybody after them. He takes sin and he obliterates it at the cross. But he's more than just a nice little personal Jesus that Marilyn Manson sung about a decade or so ago. He's not the Jesus you pull off the shelf when you need him. He's not the Jesus you stick in your pocket and take to work with you so in case something goes on during the day, you have something to help you through. This Jesus is the Son of God. You know what that means? That means if he truly is divine, and he is... That means that you owe him everything in your life. Not part of it. It's not a Sunday Christianity kind of thing or a Sunday Wednesday kind of thing. It's not even one of those things where you can say, well, we're going to build a little Christian culture around my life. Jesus says, I am God in the flesh. And you owe me everything of your life. So when he says jump, we say, yes, sir. We don't ask how high. It doesn't matter how high. You do what he says. But you see, that causes problems for American Christianity. Because American Christianity is built on the uh, personal Jesus thing. Just rub my little Jesus statue, whatever yours happens to look like. Take out my Bible and proof text looking for something that will help me through today. Those things in and of themselves may not be all bad, but let me tell you something. He's the Son of God. And your life is not your own. It's His. So the Roman soldier says, Surely this was the Son of God. So I ask you the question that is the title of the sermon to you. Who is this guy? Is he in fact Lord is he the Son of God or is he just a convenient Savior, your get-out-of-hell-free card? Well, this is a threatening kind of message. <laughs> because when you start really getting a handle on who he is, it changes everything. And we've crafted our Jesus into our own perception. 
a tree trunk or a rope or a wall. To us, it works. Except it doesn't work. Years ago, Wayne Watson wrote a song that challenges me even to this day. The lyrics are this. Would I know you now if you walked into the room? If you stilled the crowd, if your light dispelled the gloom, and if I saw your wounds, touched your thorn-pierced brow, I wonder if I'd know you now. Would I know you now if you walked into this place? Would I cause you shame? Would my games be your disgrace? Or would I worship you? Fall down on my face. I wonder if I'd know you now. Bow your heads, please. Let me ask you a couple of soul-searching questions. If the real Jesus walked into this room, would you know him? If he came into your life in such a way that he challenged your comfortable perception of him, would it force you to change the way you live? Who is this guy? If you're here today, and for the first time you've been confronted with Jesus as Savior, maybe you don't even understand all of it, but you know as sure as you're sitting there that something's going on inside of you and you're trying to figure out what it is that's making you so uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit is doing his job, which is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, now's your chance. Just a few moments, we'll all stand. And if you don't know Jesus, you're Savior, but you know that you need to make some kind of a step towards him today. When we all stand, I'm going to invite you to just step out and make your way to the front. We'll talk to you, counsel with you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to try to talk you into something. But we want to introduce you to Jesus as Savior. And that's the place we start. Many of us, for a long time, have known Jesus as Savior. But we've not gone beyond that. Like those disciples, we got out of the boat and started following, but we stopped following somewhere and we just adopted what we knew at that point. Jesus beckons to you through the years, walk with me and I will blow your mind with life. It's time to catch up.